from WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH Radio Boston, this is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. Before heading home for Turkey, the Supreme Court this week declined to hear a case pitting a prominent climate scientist against a conservative news outlet and a free market think tank. To be clear, this is considered a win for the climate scientist as it allows his defamation case against those outlets to go forward. So let's backtrack. Michael Mann is the scientist in question. He leads the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University, and he's best known as one of the originators of the now infamous hockey stick graph of rising global temperatures. And he is suing, or has been trying to sue, the National Review and the Competitive Enterprise Institute for defamation after they not only attacked his science, but called him, quote, the Jerry Sandusky of climate science. The case has been winding its way through the courts for several years, raising a complex mix of questions about the definition of factual truth and First Amendment rights. Jennifer Hijazi and her colleague Pamela King are covering this case for E&E News. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Take us back to the beginning of this case. Uh, What did the National Review and the Competitive Enterprise Institute take issue with that, that they attacked Michael Mann about? Uh, sure. So Michael Mann sued in 2012 over over these comments. They called him, as you said, the Jerry Sandusky of climate science after posting these two columnists wrote pieces pretty much harpooning his science concerning the hockey stick graph and then inserted that comment as well. And these cases have been allowed to move forward. But CEI and the National Review are saying that the lower courts erred in how they framed the question you know, quote, whether a jury could construe the statements as expressing verifiable facts, unquote. Hmm. So um, it's and it's something that, you know, courts have been split on in general, lower courts over, you know, when an opinion statement can be challenged as libel. And I think that those waters become murky, particularly when those opinions are interwoven with facts in a piece. So Jennifer Hijazi, Michael Mann responded to you know, what was written about him by suing for defamation. And immediately, I, I believe it was pretty immediate, um, there was a response from the defendants that this this should be thrown out on the grounds that they are allowed to to express opinion, correct? Yes. They, they have said that the issue of freedom of speech, these, these kinds of libel issues concerning, um, you know, what is opinion, what is fact is something that should be decided by courts and not a jury. And that, you know, that's something that Alito said in his dissent as well. You know, this case brings up First Amendment concerns. He said, quote, that that go to the very heart of the constitutional guarantee of freedom of speech and freedom of press, you know, unquote. And as such, he said, this belongs on the Supreme Court docket. But, um, you know, the other justices disagreed and have allowed the case to move forward with a jury trial. So they're in the discovery process right now. So Jennifer Hijazi, I mean, as you mentioned, this is a a pretty unique case. We have seen climate science showing up in courtrooms more and more in recent years. But this is a, a pretty unusual version of that, right? Um, I would say it's it's not a version of the other climate cases that are, you know, currently circulating through the courts right now. There are many different kinds of climate cases from climate damages lawsuits from U.S. municipalities all over the country, um, shareholder lawsuits like the one we saw in New York. This case is unique because it it really is a perfect storm of two hot button issues right now. It sort of makes strange bedfellows of 
of climate science and First Amendment issues. And, you know, lower courts have been split on you know, these cases on opinion versus libel. And this is kind of an, another interesting test case that also melds together two really important topics in public opinion right now. So, I mean, when you say strange bedfellows, uh, what is it that you see lining up that you wouldn't normally in a, uh, in, in a climate change uh, litigation situation? Sure. I think that climate litigation in general, although it's been going on for a few years now, is still kind of a, for lack of a better word, a novelty within the court system. Like these cases are still being tested out. There are all different kinds of cases that are being brought up. You know, they're not all just in one bucket. And I think this case too is an interesting climate focused case that brings up libel issues, First Amendment issues within a climate science and a climate change context. And, you know, I I think that's an interesting combination that is being tested through this very real current hot button issue of climate change in connection with, you know, a longstanding argument and a longstanding legal battle over First Amendment issues. Jennifer Hijazi is a reporter with e News covering the case of Michael Mann suing the National Review and the Competitive Enterprise Institute for defamation. Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. This is Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. The opioid addiction epidemic has made it abundantly clear that we need different and better ways to treat pain. That could be other non-addictive or less addictive drugs, or it could be treatments that address the neurological and psychological aspects of pain, the mind-body connection. As the dangers of the opioids have become more apparent, mind-body therapies like yoga, meditation, and acupuncture have become more popular. But there remain questions about whether these techniques are actually effective in reducing pain. Now, a new meta-analysis has pulled together dozens of individual studies and finds that, yes, there is evidence that some mind-body therapies can reduce both pain and opioid use. Eric Garland is the lead author of that study in the Journal of the American Medical Association. He's a professor and director of the Center on Mindfulness and Integrative Health Intervention Development at the University of Utah. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. When you went and searched for studies that investigated the effectiveness of mind-body therapies, you initially found uh, more than 4,000 candidates. First of all, were you surprised by that number? And then how did you whittle it down to the 60 that you actually ended up considering for your meta-analysis? I was I was somewhat surprised that the that the potential literature was so big, but whenever you do a systematic review and meta analysis like this, you always start with a, a big pool and then you have to you have to weed out things that don't fit. So we were really focused on only the highest quality studies, studies that were involving a randomized controlled trial of the intervention uh, because RCTs are really the gold standard for evaluating whether a given treatment is effective. So you found about 60 of those, these randomized controlled trials where they tested the effectiveness of a mind-body therapy against some control on patients. And and actually for having 60 studies, they, they represent something like 6,000 participants. So these are pretty pretty large studies, would, would you say? Yeah, definitely. I think that was one of, one of the most appealing findings from the, from the study was that uh, there really have been a large body of patients who've been treated with mind-body therapies to alleviate pain and opioid use. 
and um, and the studies, by and large, were, were fairly well conducted, uh, fairly rigorous. And yet, 60 studies, when you're talking about the, the full range of mind-body therapies, maybe not a, a large number of studies to be basing conclusions on. Do you think we have enough evidence to actually draw conclusions about the effectiveness of mind-body therapies at this point? Yes, definitely. I mean, I agree with you that it's not a terribly large body of studies to, to examine uh, differences in the efficacy across different types of mind-body therapies. Um, you know, for example, there were only five studies of of meditation-based therapies. Um, so trying to understand the individual effects of, of different types of mind-body therapies, we probably need more studies to do that. But if if you step back and look at the literature as a whole, I think you can draw conclusions about how effective these treatments can be. And you did see that mind-body therapies could be effective, but Eric Garland, you you also broke that down, as you were just saying, into the different types of mind-body therapies. And you mentioned those five studies on meditation. One of the striking things was how effective meditation seemed to be. All five studies, 100% saw that meditation reduced pain. I mean, what scale of reduction are we talking about? And, And how confident are you that it was the meditation that did that? Great question. Um, yes, and in fact, the the meditation studies produced uh, the greatest degree of pain relief uh, compared to all the other types of mind-body therapies that we studied. So um, how much of a reduction was this? It, it, it's hard to turn the, the meta-analytic number into a number that people understand, but um, just to kind of put it in context, I, I myself conducted uh, a couple of the studies that were reviewed and in my own randomized controlled trials of, of mindfulness-based meditation therapy, we found reductions of pain uh, about, a, about 25% hmm. in pain intensity. And there are different types of pain as well as different types of therapies. When, when you specifically look at meditation, is it effective on all types of pain? Is it you know, just acute or more effective on chronic pain? Great question. Uh, well, in, in this particular analysis... Um, and again, this was an analysis not only of, of people with various types of pain conditions, but what really made this this JAMA paper unique was that every study involved patients who were taking opioids for pain. So every patient in every in, in all of these studies were were taking opioids to alleviate pain. So among this subset, uh, most of the mindfulness meditation studies were focused on people with chronic pain conditions. Um, although there was a large study that actually my colleagues and I conducted included in this review where we looked at the effects of mindfulness on acute pain in people uh, in, in the hospital setting, experiencing pain for everything that might send somebody to the hospital, anything from diseases or injuries, traumas, um, burns, childbirth, etc. Wow. So a pretty wide range there. I mean, you mentioned the fact that everyone in this uh, the, everyone in all of the studies considered in this meta study um, were taking opioids for their pain. Why was that aspect of it so important to you? I mean, simply put, no one had ever looked at the scientific literature this way. There have been other reviews of studies of mind-body therapies for, for people experiencing various types of pain. And by and large, those reviews have showed that mind-body therapies are effective for reducing pain. But but we did not know whether these therapies could help people who were also prescribed opioids. And and given the the opioid crisis in this country, that question seemed really important. And so we 
and so we found that we found that these mind body therapies uh, are indeed effective for this population and and may even reduce the opioid dose that patients are taking. I mean, that seems like an interesting and important finding because, as you were saying, the you know if you take meditation, it may not completely alleviate pain, but maybe if you take the the finding that it does reduce pain by by some amount and it reduces opioids suggests you know it, it's relieving pain enough to at least get to a lower dose of opioids which may then reduce the the risks posed by those opioids that's right and also with respect to meditation in particular um i think it offers another benefit which is that mindfulness meditation uh is a way of really of enhancing self-control and if we can strengthen self-control, that may give us an ability to to help people to moderate their dose of opioids. So, you know, just to take the only the amount of opioids they need to achieve pain relief um, and to prevent their opioid use from becoming opioid misuse or opioid addiction. So I've actually done a lot of my own research conducting randomized controlled trials of a therapy called mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement or more for people with chronic pain to help reduce the risk of opioid misuse. And uh, across a couple of trials now, this therapy actually seems to do that. Hmm. Well, Eric Garland, this meta-analysis that you've now done did look at other uh, mind-body therapies in addition to meditation. How different were the results with different types of mind-body therapies? Uh, so we, we, we found that among the therapies that we, we studied, uh, Mindfulness meditation, hypnosis, and cognitive behavioral therapy seem to be the most effective, whereas therapies like relaxation and guided imagery uh, were, seem to be less effective. Hmm. Um, so there, there were some differences uh, that we noted across the types of therapies. Well, and in addition to just not being as effective, there were a couple of studies that suggested that those relaxation therapies could actually backfire and, and lead to more opioid use. Yes, that's true. We we did observe that in, in I believe it was two studies, um, and that was that was a surprising result. Well, Eric Garland, in addition to considering all of these um, therapies individually, you did, of course, this meta-analysis. I, I wonder what benefit you see in kind of lumping them all together and being able to make a statement overall about the effectiveness of mind-body therapies when they are so different. And you see in these individual analyses that some work really well, some work less well, some may actually have risks uh, with them. Why try to put them into one big category and say, yes or no, this whole category of therapies works? Just to clarify, we observe very, very few risks. So two out of the 60 studies. Um, so I, I, I think really the conclusion when you look at the, the, the body literature as a whole is that mind-body therapies appear to be, by and large, safe and effective means of reducing pain and opioid dosing. And the, the reason why we wanted to look at them as a whole is we wanted to really encourage clinicians to consider uh, offering these therapies or recommending these therapies to their patients as a way to, to help to um, head off the, the opioid crisis, which at this point in this country, is, it's really important to have non-opioid alternatives. Um, and, and the other point I would, I would add here is that <clears throat> many patients need to take opioids in order to, to cope with their medical condition. You know, opioids are, are uh, an, an important part of the, of the clinical approach to treating pain, but we, we need 
adjunctive therapies that can help reduce the risk of opioid misuse and addiction um, among people who are prescribed opioids. And I think mind-body therapies fit that role pretty well. The fact that you could find 60 studies that met all of your criteria and thousands of studies that were in some way looking at the effectiveness of mind-body therapies in addressing pain suggests that certainly the research community is is starting to take these options seriously. Do you see that happening in a clinical setting as well? Is there um, increased credibility for mind-body therapies? Definitely. I, I, I do a lot of work in in integrative healthcare settings and and physicians and nurses are, are really developing a recognition that these therapies can be very helpful. Uh, so there's, a, there's definitely a growing respect for these therapies in the medical community, and I think that's also probably why uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association published these results. I, I, I do think the big barrier here is how do, you get, how do patients get access to these therapies? So you know, doctors want to be able to offer these these treatments to their patients, but um, because of lack of insurance coverage and other barriers, it, it may be hard for people to, to access them. So I think we need to really work on that as a society. If, if we can offer people medication to help them with pain, we should ought, ought to be able to help them with meditation to help them with pain, um, which is a lot safer. That's Eric Garland. He's a professor of social work and director of the Center for Mindfulness and Integrative Health Intervention Development at the University of Utah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Up next, what happens to a field of science when a prominent researcher passes away? Living Lab Radio continues after a break. You're listening to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. Does science advance one funeral at a time? It may sound macabre, but it's a serious question for some researchers. In fact, it's the title of a recent study published in the American Economic Review. Joining me now is lead author Pierre Azoulay. He is the International Programs Professor of Management at MIT's Sloan School of Management and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Welcome to Living Lab Radio. Thank you for having me. This research is based at least loosely on an idea known as Planck's principle, which dates back to the early 20th century Nobel Prize winning physicist Max Planck. What is Planck's principle? So Planck was very cynical about the way in which science progresses, and he was frustrated by the slow acceptance of his of the revolution that he had brought to physics, which was the revolution of quantum mechanics. And you may remember that Albert Einstein was actually very slow at accepting and, in fact, never really fully accepted uh, hmm. the principles of this sort of paradigm shift in physics. And so that was his uh, sort of cynical quip that, you know, maybe what was needed is for the, the, the generation of uh, scholars who had been trained in a different tradition to simply... Uh, sort of pass away before suddenly uh, sort of young people could take, take up the mantle and sort of push physics forward. Not worrying about changing the minds of the old guard, but just letting them disappear and waiting for a new generation to come in with new ideas. Something like that. So how do you test that idea? So it's important to realize that Max Planck was really talking about the setting of um, what we call paradigm shifts in science, really scientific revolutions. Um, and so we can, we can study history and we can study 
big events, but big epochal shifts in science, such as um, evolutionary biology or uh, quantum physics or something of that nature. But it's, you know, there are very few of those events. So in some Mm. sense, if you just study scientific revolutions, you are going to be in the realm of um, very interesting storytelling. (laughs) Not a lot of data. Not a lot of data. Uh, And so what we wanted to do in this paper is to bring Planck's principle and to test Planck's principle in a setting that you might call um, normal science. That is sort of the regular day-to-day job of scientists of sort of pushing science forward, but within a paradigm that is more or less settled, more or less accepted. Um, And so that potentially could sort of bring the opportunity to gather sort of a large sample of, of, of data to actually see, um, to actually test the idea, or at least the implication of the idea. And specifically what we wanted to see is what happens um, to, to scientific fields when a luminary uh, within that field passes away prematurely. Hmm. So how many cases like that are you able to find? I mean, you know, you say there's maybe half a dozen uh paradigm shifts that you could study, but how many cases where you've got a superstar scientist in a field who passes away early can you actually find to to study? So in our paper, we have 452. Wow. 452 um, leading academic life scientists over a period of about 30 years. Um, And they're active in many many subfields, about 3,000 plus subfields starts to make you wonder if you actually want to be a superstar scientist. <laughs> right. Well, so I'll, I'll, you know, it's 452 out of a very large universe of thousands and thousands of scientists. Good to put that into perspective there. So Pierre Azoulay, uh, you took these uh, 452 cases of kind of eminent superstar scientists who then passed away prematurely and, and looked at what happened to their subfield of science, what did you find? Did, did you see paradigm shifts taking place in the wake of their deaths? So we didn't find paradigm shifts. What we found is that those subfields appeared to expand modestly after they passed away versus before. Hmm. But the real aha moment is when we looked at uh, the kinds of authors that were responsible for this modest expansion. And we, uh, in some sense, parse the activity uh, in those subfields by separating the activity that came from former co-authors of the stars, former collaborators, versus um, the activity that came from newcomers to the field, or at least people, I shouldn't say newcomers, but people who had not collaborated with the star while he or she was alive. And there was sort of a very sharp contrast in some sense activity within those subfields by former collaborators of the star decreased markedly, like in a massive way. And that's, in fact, confirming an earlier result of ours that only focused on collaborators. But there's sort of a countervailing tendency, which is that there is, in fact, a lot new entry, uh, meaning a lot of new papers being written in those subfields, but only by authors who are not collaborators of the stars. That's really interesting. So you've got the superstar, but then also uh, a close cadre of, of collaborators. 
And when that superstar passes away, those leading collaborators also seem to to fade away and a whole bunch of new people come into that area. That's right. And that's really the new, this is really the part that is new about this paper is to sort of think about um, who are those new people and what were keeping them away while the star was alive. So are you able from, from your research to, to pinpoint specific mechanisms or, or ways that the superstar from that position is excluding younger researchers or, or what that actually, you know, what, what is the source of that effect? So uh, to some extent, yes. So here is what we don't find first. We don't find that superstars are actively, you know, engaged in sort of blackballing and literally keeping out proscribing the entry of, of, of scientists. We, we don't see evidence of that, of that direct effect. What we see is both an effect that you, can, uh, you could call an intimidation effect, which is that when you have a field that looks from outside very coherent, like everyone collaborates with one another, everyone agrees on what the questions are, everyone uh, uses the same methodologies, um, then in those, kinds, for those, in those kinds of subfields, there is much less of this post-death entry that we um, observe in general. So those are, in some sense, perceived barriers to entry. But then what we also find is that it is almost possible for star scientists to control their fields from beyond the grave. And they can do that through basically a tight-knit rear guard of close collaborators. So what we find is that when the close collaborators of the star while alive are in positions of power, so for example, they sit on uh, funding committees at the National Institute of Health, or um, they are editorials of major journals, in those fields, then there is also less of this post-death entry that we observe in general. So um, there, are barriers, there are barriers to entry in science. They are both... Um, they both exist sort of in the eye of the beholder, but there are also some that are probably real and tangible. So the first thing uh, that we try to do is to think about um, who are those non-collaborators? Because if you think about what it means to not collaborate with the star, it might have meant that you were um, sort of a competitor um, of the star while she was alive. Um, and then when she passed away, then in some sense you, uh, you inherited the mantle of leadership in the field. Uh, but in fact, that's not what we find at all. We find that those non-collaborators are new entrants to the field. They are people who were not active in the field before, who now enter it in pretty short order after the passing of the superstar. And Pierre Azoulay, I, I appreciate your use of the feminine pronoun there, that these superstars could be any gender. But in fact, you found that 90% of these star scientists were male. What about those newcomers? Um, those newcomers are not disproportionately, disproportionately male or female. They are sort of in the proportion of that, in the same proportion that you sort of observe in the labor market, which is, you know, they are disproportionately male. But in fact, that proportion changes over time um, because while when our study begins in the 19, late 60s, early 70s, um, the labor market, the scientific labor market, is overwhelmingly male-dominated. Uh, by the 2000s, the, the proportions have sort of evened out um, very, very significantly. So you've got an influx of researchers from 
other fields, uh, I don't know, are they closely related fields, completely disparate fields? Are we talking about, you know, the physicist who came in and took up questions in genetics? Or, or is this just, you know, the, the corn geneticists take over the, the tobacco genetics research or something like that? It's probably more of the latter. Our study is limited to the life sciences, broadly construed. So we're not talking about people who are coming literally from left field. <laughs> but, um, you know, they were sufficiently far afield that we couldn't observe them before in our data. Well, Pierre Azoulay, that kind of raises a question about, you know, part of what you had to do was actually define what is a subfield of science. And uh, I think about this kind of like an analogy with an old car. If you've replaced every part in the car, is it still the same car if the uh, star scientist and the core collaborators that kind of defined that field have faded away and a whole new group of people have come into that field. Is it really still the same field? Oh, it may be in, a, in the eye of the beholder, but here we are fortunately helped by the data that is uh, systematically um, harvested and made available by the National Library of Medicine. So those are literally your tax dollars at work. The National Library of Medicine not only indexes the entire biomedical literature, but also tags every article with keywords, very detailed keywords. Uh, and in fact, professional coders uh, affix those keywords to all those articles. And so that enabled us to actually delineate subfields. So we consider an, that an article is intellectually related to another article because in some sense they overlap a lot in terms of the keywords that they use. So what we're saying about those newcomers, in some sense, is that um, they publish a lot of papers that in some sense overlap with the keywords of the star, much more so after the star has died than before. Hmm. So what is then the total impact? And this is something that you looked at in this new study. What is the total impact on the, the kind of vitality, the actual activity in that field of science after that person passes away? Do you have newcomers in but not the, the same, you know, maybe level of activity and impact? Or, or does, it, does it maintain that vitality? So that's what's really interesting. It's not just that there are slightly more papers being written, but that those papers being written are actually more important. Hmm. meaning they will actually have in the future more impact. They will be highly cited. They are disproportionately likely to be highly cited. So this is not sort of marginal fluff that gets added to the field. Those are actually contributions that we should care about. Well, Pierre Azoulay, as an economist, I wonder what is it about this process of science and understanding how scientific advancement happens that is of interest from an economic perspective? Well, I think that economists are really interested in what makes science uh, work or not work because we think of science as um, one of the key ingredients for economic growth. And so to the extent that we can improve the institutions of science, we might think that this could actually have long-term very positive effect on our well-being. And probably nowhere is this more so than in the setting of uh, you know, biomedical research. And are there aspects of what you have found about what, as we've said, is actually a very rare case where uh, an eminent scientist in a particular field passes away prematurely? Uh, is there anything about what we now know about that rare case that can better help us understand or even uh, promote scientific advancement in the more common and 
obviously desirable case where it's, it, you don't have a, an eminent scientist passing away prematurely? I think potentially. I want to. I don't want to take it too far. So the implication of our research is not that we should start, you know, randomly off eminent scientists to hasten scientific progress. <laughs> no, no, we're not going to. Definitely not going to promote that idea. But, um, but at the same time, what our results um, imply is that superstars, once safely ensconced at the top of their field, may be overstaying their welcome a bit. They might build a rear guard of, you know, like-minded researchers, and they could engage in a variety of gatekeeping activities, basically filtering the ideas, filtering out the ideas that they feel doesn't fit their particular view of where the field ought to go. And if you think about it, in fact, this, this power of agenda setting, of deciding where the field should go, that's one of the big prize in science, you know, like one reason you could think of what motivates scientists, right? So one reason might be, you know, getting a Nobel Prize, but sort of short of that, you know, being in a situation where you can have a deep intellectual impact on an area of inquiry, that's part of the reason why you wake up every day. So if I think about our superstars, you know, they probably did a lot of great things to hoist themselves, you know, to the frontier and to, to, to see themselves in this situation. The problem is sort of once you are now at the top of the mountain, um, do you stop seeing or valuing maybe ideas that um, sort of rub you the wrong way or, you know, make different assumptions about how the world works, uh, do not work with the same sort of methodologies, uh, do not take the sa exactly the same things for granted? Um, and does this have in turn um, sort of an implication for how fast uh, the scientific enterprise can sort of move forward? And so we think that potentially the answer is yes. And so, you know, we want to be sort of very, it, it's a little bit hazardous to move from our results to policy implications, but certainly it doesn't seem out of order to think about ways in which we can open things up a little bit more so that in particular younger scholars maybe can make their mark earlier than they would be, than they would be able to otherwise because they are less dependent. That's Pierre Azoulay. He is the International Programs Professor of Management at MIT's Sloan School of Management and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Thank you so much. Thank you. Living Lab Radio continues after a break. Welcome back to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. In the summer of 2014, photos of a 100-foot-wide crater in northwest Siberia took the Internet by storm. What had created this huge and mysterious hole in the ground? Well, it was soon determined that the most likely culprit was climate change, that thawing permafrost had allowed a buildup of explosive methane gas that created the crater. Since then, several more of these permafrost craters have been identified, but now researchers at Woods Hole Research Center are launching a comprehensive search effort to see how common and widespread these craters are and learn more about them. Sue Natali is Woods Hole Research Center's Arctic Program Director, and Greg Fisk is a senior geospatial analyst there, and they join me now in our Woods Hole studio. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Heather. Thank you. Thanks, Heather. All right, Sue, let's go back five years to summer of 2014, and the, the first pictures of this crater emerged. And 
I remember it was just like this whirlwind of speculation. First of all, are the pictures even real? What on earth could have created this? Was this, you know, a meteor strike that we had missed? What was your first reaction when you heard about the, these craters or this one crater, I guess? Um, I was actually in Siberia when I heard about that one crater, but it had placed very distant from where the crater exploded. Um, I was surprised in disbelief. I actually wasn't quite sure that it was real and something that happened. I didn't know what to believe. I had limited information because I was at a remote field station. So I, I, it just seemed like a crazy thing. I, I honestly didn't know, think at the time I, that I believed it was actually happening. So clearly, for this to be an impact of climate change was not something that you as an Arctic climate scientist were expecting. I didn't expect it then, and I still don't expect it now. Um, it's a, not something that any Arctic scientists talk about for this to happen on land, to have land explode because of a buildup of methane below the ground. It still surprises me now. Okay, so what do we know about the cause of, of this crater or, you know, there have been a handful of these found of these craters? Yeah, we still don't know that much, surprisingly. Um, there's been about six to eight of them that have been identified for certain, and um, we know that they, over um, a couple, few years period, they start to build up like a hump in the ground. And then that lump, it looks like what um, people call a pingo, which is sort of a just a, a large hill on the ground in the Arctic that's usually filled with ice. Um, that hump explodes. It forms a very large hole in the ground. And then by the next year, that hole can fill with water and it can look like another lake. Hmm. Um, we know that the Methane concentrations in these holes and then also in the water are very high. They've been measured a thousand times higher than atmospheric. So there's certainly methane that's building up underneath these. And um, we, it's likely that this is methane that is building up and being created because of the breakdown of organic matter that's underneath the ground. Um, these methane craters have been associated with warmer summers. So they seem to happen in these summers where there's been anomalously or after summers when there's anomalously high temperature. And they tend to be in places where there's kind of an ice cap. So the ice cap maybe you know, one possibility is that there's methane that's building up and you have these higher temperatures and you're increasing pressure and you have this ice that's underneath the ground and then it builds up enough that it explodes. Um, wow. But there's still mostly there's a lot that is not known about them even you know where to find them where the next ones are happening just because there's so few of them that have been located i mean let's take one step back why would methane even build up as permafrost is is thawing and warming like that so in in these terrestrial landscapes the methane that's that's coming out of the ground there's organic matter that's in the ground so that's soil that has a lot of carbon in it, and then that gets broken down. It can be released by microbes as carbon dioxide or methane. So in areas that are saturated, you're more likely to get methane produced and released. So that's the likely mechanism of this. There are other possibilities for how methane can be in the ground. I mean, there's methane that's fossil fuel methane, you know, that we're extracting. Um, that's very, very ancient. It was formed many, many years ago. Um, it seems like this methane is biogenic methane that's more recently formed. So, Greg Fisk, you're the, the data and, and maps guy for this uh, project. Mm -hmm. Sue was saying there are six, seven, eight of these that have been identified so far. I mean, they, yeah. are they all in one region? Are they all across Siberia? Um, do, do we have a sense of, of how widespread this phenomenon might be? 
So um, what we're looking at is an area of the Yamal Peninsula, the central part of Siberia, and then just to the east, the Gaiden Peninsula. And so, so far, I think four of them have been found on Yamal Peninsula and two on the Gaiden Peninsula. Okay. Yep. So kind of a, a more restricted area, not trying to take on all of Siberia. Right. And right. so far, those have been identified from satellite imagery, right? So how different is the the data that you're trying to use or are going to be generating and using to, to you know, map these more broadly? So I think so far these have actually been located on the, on the ground by the local residents. And what we're trying to do is that take that to the next level, is to find out how many others may exist that aren't known. Um, you can picture Siberia. It's a big place. Right. And the Yamal Peninsula itself is, is a very big place. Our proposed study extends about 850,000 square kilometers. So within that area, we're going to use some new open access geospatial data sets that we now have access to, and we now have the ability to, to data mine and to dig in these data sets and to explore for these types of features. So what kind of data are we talking about? I mean, how do you go search for, other than visually, how do you go search for a crater in Siberia? So the key data set in this analysis is going to be a new data set put out by the Polar Geospatial Center at the University of Minnesota. And that's a, a time series of elevation, of very high-resolution elevation data. And when I mean high-resolution, uh, we're talking about two meters for the entire Pan-Arctic. Um, wow. Through a recent joint project between the NGA, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and NSF, they were able to map uh, the entire Pan-Arctic using high-res stereoscopic satellite imagery to build an elevation data set. So what are you looking for? Are you actually looking for just a fully formed crater, essentially a place that looks deeper? Or are you looking for, yep. over time, changes like Sue was describing, that kind of the buildup of the hill and then the yep. collapse? Exactly. As Sue mentioned, these things kind of mound up just prior to their explosion from what we've read in the literature, what we've learned from our colleagues in, in Russia. And so we're looking for that change from a flat surface to a bulbous surface to then a crater. And then these craters in this part of the world, of course, fill up quickly afterwards with water. So you're going from flat vegetative land generally, to a, a bubble, to a crater, and then finally a new pond. And so you can actually trace that over yep. time with so we, this data set. With the, with the elevation data set. How yep. long do you expect that to take to kind of get a map of this area and get a sense of, of how many craters there might be there? So we've pictured this going through a, a series. In the first series, we analyze this elevation data set, and then we can start to roll in other filters, vegetation change data set, uh, to see if things gone from a vegetated area to water, for example, and then we can actually start to do some three-dimensional modeling as well because uh, you can picture a crater mounding up. It has this conal characteristic. We can detect that in this elevation data. And so we start applying all these filters, and we hopefully, within a year's time or a couple years' time at best, um, have some kind of results. So these craters are uh, a surprising and bizarre phenomenon. Do they pose... A, a risk to people? I mean, you, you mentioned that people found these. How many people are around there? Is there their infrastructure in the areas where these craters have been found? Yeah, so where these craters have been found is actually an area um, where there's a lot of gas and oil extraction. And so there is a lot of infrastructure. There are people because people are the identify these on the ground. Um, and one of the craters was actually quite close to um, a pipeline. So mm -hmm. there are risks from these craters, um, impacts on infrastructure, um, a lot of high economic costs and also potential costs to human populations. And the other exciting thing for me, uh, Heather, with this data sets, these data sets is that they're pan-Arctic. And so the methodology that we're working out here can be potentially applied anyplace. Right. So you're looking at one part of kind of northwestern Siberia with right. this initial study, but you could right. 
potentially broaden that out to, to the entire Arctic. Right. So you could have the west coast for Alaska, for, for example, that's changing drastically as sea level rises and villages are actually sinking. We could apply the same data sets methodology there and then map change in, in that region. So areas where there could be more people, we could then demarcate those and, and work out those interactions. So, Sue Natale, as a climate scientist, I mean, once you've got a map of this area and some sense of how many of these craters are there, what does that tell you? I mean, if it turns out that there really are only half a dozen and they've already all been found, what does that say about our understanding of climate change or if there are 20 of them? I mean, the fact that these were unanticipated, you know, what what do we kind of do with that yeah, information? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's two ways to look at it. One of it is just like, what's its contribution to global carbon emissions? And that, if there's six of them, that may be low. Regardless, um, this is a new process and our understanding of how the earth system functions. And so for me, that alone is important. You know, we scientists keep having these surprises about climate change. And to me, this is another one of those surprises. Um, at the same time, if we only find six craters, while we're going through this methodology of mapping these craters, we're also going to be identifying other abrupt events. And um, there's a process called thermocarst, which is just when, you know, the ground essentially collapses because of permafrost thaw. It's a really important process in the Arctic, and it's really important for carbon emissions because when a thermocarst event happens, the ground thaws abruptly, much faster than the models are predicting. So we're going to be mapping these craters, but at the same time, we're going to be mapping other large disturbance events with this methodology. And so I feel like even if the craters themselves aren't this massive carbon emissions, regardless, it is a new change. It's not something that we expected. Um, and I and I do want to point out, I, this is a different process process than what people may have heard about methane clathrates, which are located usually in the deeper ocean. This is kind of a, I don't, it's a methane forms sort of a solid form. It, it forms under high pressure conditions in the deep ocean. Um, this is not what's happening on land. This is why this is such a surprise, because this is in an area where you just don't have the pressure for those methane clathrates to form. So, you know, just the idea that the the world is changing in a way that scientists never would have predicted, I think, alone is um, is a concern. Absolutely. It's a concern. I think it's also, though, something that has sometimes been weaponized against climate science to say, right, like, look, there, there are these things happening that climate scientists completely didn't even anticipate. Like, maybe we just have this whole thing kind of wrong. How do you put that into to perspective? Well, I mean, the reality is, you know, we've we've never been able to learn the system that we're in right now because it's never happened before. So it doesn't surprise me that we're there's changes that are happening in the Earth system that we didn't know because we've never experienced this rate of change. Um, the one thing I do notice is that when the climate scientists are wrong, we're generally wrong in the conservative end. You know, I mean, the ice sheets are melting faster than we expected. These are, these processes that are happening, you know, with permafrost that are happening faster than we expected. And so, um, you know, I, I, I would love to be wrong in the other direction, to be honest with you. Like, I would rather not have these processes, changes in the Earth system happen faster than we expected. But, you know, but this is what happens. Like, you know, for the most part, the climate scientists aren't wrong. There are just some changes that are happening that were unexpected that because we have never been in this place on this planet before. Do you think these are processes, especially when you're talking about these abrupt changes? I mean, that's one thing that's really emerged out of the science in the past few years is that climate change is not going to be this continuous change, you know, steady change in one direction that we seem to be seeing these abrupt jumps and changes. Is it 
possible to understand the system well enough to predict those? It's tricky. Um, but I'd say, yes, it is possible, but it's definitely challenging. And it's 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 possible to understand them. It's very challenging to get some of these abrupt processes into the models. And it's partly just because things are changing faster than the science can actually happen to keep up to it. And so incorporating some of these processes into the models, in a lot of cases, is not that scientists don't know that they're happening. It just takes time to, to get the processes right and to get the data that you need and to get them into the models themselves. Right. The difference between, okay, now we know that craters can form because thawing permafrost allows methane to build up and form craters is different than quantitatively being able to say, you know, there are six or 20 or 100 of these craters that are emitting this much greenhouse gases and, and put that into the model in a meaningful way. Right. Because one of the things we're we're hoping to do is as we find more, at least then we can identify what are the conditions under which a crater forms. Like we know it's been warmer years, but it's not everywhere, right? It's in certain places that they're forming. And so can we just even just by looking at the patterns across the landscape, take that as a starting point to gather more information to get a better understanding of where and why and when they may happen now and in the future? Well, best of luck with the project, and we'll call you back in a year to see what you've learned. <laughs> That's Sue Natale. She directs the Arctic program at Woods Hole Research Center, and Greg Fisk, he's a senior geospatial analyst there. They're working on a project to map permafrost craters in part of Siberia. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. Until next week, this is Living Lab Radio. You can always connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening. Living Lab Radio is produced by WCAI in Woods Hole and WGBH in Boston. It's produced by me, Elsa Partan, and Heather Goldstone is executive producer. Theme music by Stellwagen Symphonette.